0: In Florida, the seas are rising, and so are the rents. Is it time to flee the sunshine state for Motor City? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The term climate gentrification was coined by Jesse Keenan of Harvard's Graduate School of Design. In a 2018 paper, Keenan writes that while gentrification is most often driven by supply, that is a surplus of devalued property that invites development and transformation, climate gentrification is the opposite.
1: Climate gentrification is really about a shift in... Preferences and demand function. And that is a much broader phenomenon in terms of geography and physical geography or markets and submarkets than any kind of localized gentrification uh, in a classic sense.
0: In other words, as people are attracted to areas of lower vulnerability, developers see an opportunity to make a killing. Valencia Gunder, a community organizer and climate educator in Miami, recognizes the irony. She tells us that in the city's earliest days, Haitian, Bahamian, and Caribbean immigrants were barred from living in the Tony beachfront areas.
2: Black people had to live in the center of the city, which is different than most America because usually low-income Black communities are in lower lining areas. And so everything they did that they thought they were doing to hurt us actually ended up helping us in the long run.
0: Gunders' family has been in the area for generations, even before Miami was a city. She says that Miami's history of marginalizing its black residents goes back to its beginnings as a tourist destination.
2: So historically, when Julia Tuttle and Henry Flagler came to South Florida to create the now formal Miami, they wanted to create this tropical paradise that the snowbirds could come from the north in the winter time when the rest of the country is frozen, um, to have this tropical paradise and you don't have to leave the country for, for. So when they started to build Miami, they were building it to be a tourist attraction. They never had the intentions for it to be a place or a city that it is now. Like it was supposed to be like this seasonal place where people come. One of the first buildings they built was a hotel. Um, So that's what they were building it for. And of course, during um, segregation, Jim Crow, even though they had to go get the Bahamians and the Haitians and the Caribbean folks to build on Miami because they didn't know how to build on the swamp, they would not allow the black people to live on the beach. Black people had to live in the center of the city, which is different than most America because usually low income black communities are in lower lining areas. It's opposite here in Miami. They forced us to the middle of the city. Um, they also built this highway, I-95, straight through our community. And so everything they did they, they that they thought they were doing to hurt us actually ended up helping us in the long run. Now that Miami is ground zero for sea level rise, the the beach will be underwater. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. Science already proved that. And usually when storms hit, the eye of the storm doesn't come through the center of the city, which is where like Overtown, alapada Liberty City, Little Havana, which are like all of the low-income communities of, um, color, all sit in the center of the city. So we don't usually take the bulk of the storm. So they deem us quote-unquote weather safe, right? And so now we're starting to see I mean, I've been in Miami 34 years and some of the things that I see happening in, in inside my community now, I wouldn't have saw 20 years ago. So... It's, it's, it's interesting because we were forced to live in these areas and now we're being forced out of them.
0: And what's happening there? There's a billion-dollar development uh, in, in Little Haiti. I've read about uh, Peter Ehrlich and other developers moving into that because they see the future, the desirability of the higher ground, more hurricane-safe, as you said. Mm-hmm. So what's happening as people are starting to realize that sea level rise is – soon, if not, and now in Miami.
2: Right, so a few, well the science says that we're going to get six feet of water. Little Haiti sits eight feet above sea level rise. I know that's not high for most Americans, but that's high for a (laughs) Miami, and I always have to tell people that. Once the water comes in, Little Haiti will be beachfront property. Bottom line. It's going to be beachfront property. It's going to be the new shore, and if that happens 50 years from now, 60 years from now, that's what the reality is. So it's become like the new or the hottest toy on the shelf, little Haiti. So yeah, that's where the Haitian community settled when they came into Miami. Just like how our Cuban population went to Little Havana, and our Dominican population went to Little—I mean, Alapata and our Bahamian communities in Coconut Grove. That's just what they did, and they made their own community. They put, they brought their culture, their food, and their families there. And but it does make them extremely vulnerable for many reasons. One, because it's going to be beachfront property, so it's prime real estate. Secondly, it is ten minutes away from the airport. It's 10 minutes away from the beach, the existing beach now. (laughs) (laughs) And it is weather safe all at the same time. And also 85% of the people that live in Little Haiti are renters. So that makes them extremely vulnerable. And the median household income... Last I checked was between eighteen dollars to $20,000. So people are living in extreme poverty. Then you have their immigration status to make them even more vulnerable. So it makes them extremely vulnerable. So even bringing in a medium-sized development would shift that entire community. So a massive development like Magic City or Legion East or it's so many, it's because it's four of them coming into Little Haiti. It's not just Magic City. Magic City is just the largest one. People can't survive that.
0: So what, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that, uh, what, what would you like to happen? Because some people would say that investment coming into an area can be helpful, create jobs, create, if you do, for those who do own property there, it'll increase their property value. So are there some people who are winning and some people who are getting pushed out?
2: Well, it's some people who are winning but not the Haitian community. The Haitians are losing. As a community, they're losing in this fight. Um I'm not against development. I don't want anybody to ever get twist get it twisted, but I am against displacement. Now, I do know of models around the country where you have more inclusive development that's happening, like co-ops are included, um low-income housing, workforce housing, Um, community benefits agreements that would secure jobs and educational opportunities to help build those communities up, right? Um, I'm in fear that that is not happening with the Haitian community here in Miami. And I have been a part of the fight with organizing these communities around this issue. And I have not seen a community benefits agreement presented to our community that I am satisfied with. Um, I know Commissioner Hardiman has been trying his hardest to make sure that the community get as much as they possibly can to help benefit them.
0: Is is he a planning commissioner?
2: No, he is the commissioner for that district.
0: So the representative on the city, Uh city government. Yes, the city
2: commissioner Mm -hmm. for that district. And he has tried his hardest to make sure that, you know, the community gets what's best, but it has not been easy. And to me, it still is not good enough um when I've seen like community benefits agreements from California and community benefits agreements in Harlem, right, where it's like hundreds of millions of dollars going and pouring into a community that that's securing housing and jobs and health care and stuff like that, so I believe that we can do way better than what we've been doing, um, even though it's been people to the table trying to make sure that happens.
0: And when you're talking to people in Little Haiti in these conversations, is climate identified as as one of the drivers of this, or is climate too far and abstract, thought about you know glaciers and polar bears, or is climate connected to what's happening?
2: Well, a few things. One, especially in the Haitian community, most of them are climate refugees already from the earthquake and Mm. the the, um, hurricanes that happened in Haiti. Mm. So that's a thing. Most Mm. of them are climate refugees. So Mm. climate is already tied to them every day. It's not like a conversation you have at the table at home because climate and climate change is something that they've been dealing with for a long time. They grew up on the island, right? We know that the islands are being affected by these epidemics every day. And then most of them had to leave their home country to come over here for those reasons. And mm. also, they they were feeling it, right? We like tree canopy in our community, so it's extreme heat. They noticed that they're being pushed out. Like people who live in mobile homes and like certain different um, apartment complexes, they're being pushed out. Small business owners are being pushed out of Little Haiti. Also, Haitian-owned small businesses, and they know and they have that undertone just like they did in liberty city that meeting i was telling you about like they're telling you like we know they're coming for us because it doesn't flood over here and we don't get this over here they know that it's coming they just never had nobody to give them the science and the evidence until i start doing my workshops Mm -hmm. they they knew it but it's not like Now, if you go into Little Haiti or these areas, they'll probably bring up the term climate gentrification because they now know it. But at first they would talk about the actual action of it. But like they would probably never say like, oh, you know, we have more than 350 parts per million of carbon in the air. They won't give you (laughs) all of that. But they will (laughs) let you know that they're taking our communities because Miami is going underwater. They know that. For fact.
0: Um, There's a real debate right now in the Democratic Party on the left, prompted by the Green New Deal, about how ambitious in scope the Green New Deal should be. Should it attack jobs and, and economic equity and some of the problems of capitalism and all these things? And some people are saying, whoa, that's too much. And other people are saying, hey, these things are all connected. Jobs and racism and redlining and climate, they're all part of these same systems. How do you talk about things as connected?
2: Well, I always tell people that climate is a threat multiplier. So if you're already having social ills in your community. Climate is only going to make it worse. And we focus as a society more on adaptation and mitigation. And when you continue to focus on adaptation, 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 that's going to cause wars. Like people are going to start like, I think that's where you're going to have your classism issues and your poverty issues and things like that. Because adaptation, you have to have money to adapt Right. So if you don't have money or power or class, then you're going to have a problem ultimately. Right. So I think about that when I go talk to communities. Right. So I try to teach them about how you can do things to adapt and mitigate in your community every day to prepare for these things. Um, I'm really good with mixing medicine and candy. Right. -hmm. Because some people don't want to sit through a science class. So um, I do like this really like fast blast of teaching people about climate change and um, sea level rise. Like I use two cups of ice and water to teach sea level rise. And it's extremely easy. People remember it. And I always give people like 10 things to do in their house every day to help um, lessen their carbon footprint. And I know that's nothing to like a big time scientist. But for a person who doesn't even think about climate change. Um, that's a big step, right? And then ultimately I bring climate to their front doors, right? So the housing piece is a huge one, right? Everybody knows climate gentrification they're trying to come take the neighborhood, but also your health. Are you wondering why you're getting short of breath walking down the street when 20 years ago you could have did it? It's not just your age, right? It's extremely hot. Um, uh, we are having what 90% of our year, 80 degrees and up in Miami Extended heat waves. Uh, We don't have cooling stations in our communities. We barely have trees. So it's those type of things that are happening that people need to know and understand. The Zika outbreak scare a lot of folks, Mm -hmm. even though they said it was only in Wynwood. But last time I checked, mosquitoes had wings. And people were nervous about it, right? And that's when I took the opportunity to educate people on what was happening, why it's happening. And then I also teach people how this will This will actually affect our food, right? That's a huge thing. People don't know and understand that we live in a peninsula. A storm hits like Hurricane Irma. It's only one way in and one way out of Miami. So we have to know and understand what we need to do to survive. Like We're not even on an island. We're in a peninsula. And we're at the bottom of it. So thinking about those things and then teaching them about how we're sitting on limestone and not bedrock like other cities you know so not the water's not just coming from the side it's coming from underneath and that also helps people understand like what they can do and what they're facing every day and it's just tied into to them like they care about their food <laughs> They care about their health and they care about their housing. And those are the three things that I usually tie climate to, to make them understand and care. And that usually is what people love to see me coming in and to talk about and discuss because they want to see how they can survive this thing that's going to happen to our city.
0: Valencia Gunder, a climate change educator and founder of Make the Homeless Smile in South Miami. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Coming up, Gunder takes us on a walking tour through Little Haiti and explains why it's ground zero for climate gentrification.
2: Because it's no Little Haiti unless you have Haitian people with Haitian culture. So they are literally wiping it away, little bit by little bit. When
0: Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about ways to mitigate climate change by building more resilient cities. Later, we'll walk through the neighborhood of Little Haiti with community activist Valencia Gunder. My next guest, Jesse Keenan, teaches urban development and climate adaptation at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. In 2018, he co-authored a paper focusing on the impact of climate gentrification in South Miami. But his interest in the topic was sparked years before in another part of the world.
1: I was actually inspired by Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen, um, what they had done is they had, uh, it was one of Europe's really first real major projects to invest in a, um, a low to moderate income neighborhood that had a lot of environmental exposure uh, in terms of uh, impacts from flooding and the like. And they went in, they redesigned, they re-engineered, they made a lot of investments. Uh, it was really a very beautiful project. Um, but it had the unintended consequences of creating a set of environmental amenities that actually attracted investment, attracted new tenants, and operated indirectly with in in an unintended way, to drive out the very people that they had sought to protect. And in my mind, climate gentrification has a couple of different pathways. The first pathway is that um, people are moving from an area of high exposure to a low exposure and that can work across uh, scales and time horizons so it can be from neighborhood to neighborhood, district to district, region to region, um, certainly from South Florida to central Florida or you know state to state or transnationally. Um, the other component of it is a kind of inverse gentrification and a cost burden pathway, as I call it, mm-hmm. in the sense that really only the wealth can afford to remain by virtue of the carrying costs associated with it and finally in, in drawing immediate inspiration from Copenhagen in this case um, is the is the climate resilience pathway which is really the unintended consequences of when we go in somewhere to put in those hazard mitigation investments or um in other resilience interventions that help stabilize and preserve something sometimes There's this proposition where you're actually increasing its valuation, um, and that may be unevenly distributed, even between homeowners and renters or across incomes or whatever that may be, and that may lead to the unintended consequences. So thinking all of this through, I think in my mind... A classic model of gentrification is exactly what you suggest, which is that it is about uh, a shift in or a shift in supply. It's about developers who come in, they see some value that hasn't been captured, they take that risk or non-risk, depending on how you think about it. Uh, They produce that supply, it kind of engenders a demand over time, but it's really supply driven and it's very um, somewhat episodic and localized. Climate gentrification is very different because climate gentrification is really about a shift in preferences and demand function. And that is a much broader phenomenon, because if you're talking about a shift in demand and a shift in consumer preferences, let's say in case of... Let's say it may be uh, a high elevation relative to sea level rise. It may be in an area in California where you have historically less burn zones for frequency of forest fires. Whatever that relationship may be, um, that's a much broader phenomenon in terms of geography and physical geography or markets and submarkets than any kind of localized gentrification uh, in a classic sense. And I think that that distinction at scale and the order of magnitude of what it means to have a shift in demand um, should put us all. On notice as to the long-term implications of what climate
0: gentrification really means. So, in Little Haiti, for example, what do you think about there's the Magic City project? That's this billion-dollar project in this neighborhood that's eight feet above uh, the sea level in in Miami. Immigrant population. How do you see Magic City?
1: It is an immigrant population, but it's also a uniquely American phenomenon of Haitian Americans um, for several generations now, Mm -hmm. um, and is a critical component of the life and vitality of Miami. I think in terms of thinking about what that project and others like it represent are several things. One, um, this has been infill gentrification that's been in the making for a long time. I think to say that climate change or climate gentrification um, from a causal point of view or a weighted decision-making is, you know, I don't think there's any empirical evidence, but maybe that doesn't matter because in the long term, this high elevation, uh, uh, it may not matter to explain one's motivations now, but in the long term, it's going to be part of a broader trajectory of displacement, and that's a huge challenge. The other component um, that I think this project represents is the um, the, the the idea of Miami Twenty One, which is their local zoning form-based zoning code, which in some ways has been very successful. Um, but there is an exclusion in the special area plans, um, SAPs, as they call them, which essentially, once you get nine acres together, you can uh, essentially pull those that property together and basically do almost anything you want. Now, that isn't exactly true, but it's given them free range, and I don't think there's a net, there's been a <laughs> a strong counterpoint. And unfortunately, although I think there's great people in the city of Miami from the the planners and and those that are engaged in capital planning and like, they just don't have the tools to be true advocates for the civic realm and for local populations like those living in Little Haiti uh, to really push back on some of the impetus, which is unbounded development there. And of course, we have to think of all of this is in the context of Miami is doesn't, there is no state income tax in Florida. And you have to think about this as a kind of double-edged sword of development in the sense that they are entirely reliant on these uh, on the revenue to have any kind of investment in adaptation and adaptation resilience going forward. So um, it represents, I think, hopefully a turning point where there is perhaps a public advocate or some formal agency, uh, and I mean agency and truly the agency of the people, to not necessarily have um, these kind of ad hoc community benefits agreements um, that kind of indirectly push the project forward, but a more refined sensibility, if not quantitative set of measures about what those externalities are in terms of loss of affordable housing, displacement, storm surge, stormwater impacts, whatever that may be. So I think we need to swing the pendulum back in favor of understanding the externalities and the negative externalities of these types of development.
0: So if I heard that correctly, Miami needs development. It's a development, land development dependent economy. So it needs to develop more land in order to pay for the adaptation to protect what's already there?
1: That's partially true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to develop more land. And I actually think that, um, you know, in the definition of adaptation itself, that is the IPCC or, you know, the, the formal definition, it's both about the moderation of harm, but also the exploitation of opportunity. And I think that's important to understand that in a place like Miami, but many other places, there's an opportunity for sustainable urban development, to think about densification of housing, to utilize that value creation for the promotion of inclusionary housing and affordable housing, to think about accessibility of mass transit, to think about um, all of the perhaps positive values that come along with uh, sustainable urban development. And in a place like Miami, I don't think it's necessarily about developing new land as much as it's thinking about um, strategically the opportunities that may arise. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be severe consequences in in terms of even acceleration of displacement in some parts of town um and that's for th- that's for the city of miami to decide for themselves but i do think in some areas under the right circumstances that represents a strong counterpoint to what is otherwise a fairly um arguably bleak economic horizon.
0: So I was there and I went on a little cruise around the bays. I wanted to see these waterfront homes, multimillion dollar homes, and there's a development site right and I think it's the Bayfront Park uh, near Brickell, what will be Miami's tallest skyscraper looks like it's basically it's surrounded by water. Help me understand how that's going to work. How someone in 2019 is sinking hundreds of millions of dollars into a waterfront tower in Miami?
1: Well, the engineering um, is of a certain degree of maturity, particularly as it relates to resilience engineering, which is one of the categorical components of, of, of resilience in purely descriptive terms is that you can build an island anywhere. You can largely service that island. The question is, how does that connect urbanistically? Mm -hmm. How do people benefit? How do tenants get there, right? So if the streets are flooded, um, I mean, just intermittently flooded from inundation vent, not necessarily sea level rise. um, If you can't get the uh, adequate power distribution there, you know, whatever those service deliveries may be, of which you may be um, dependent entirely or partially on, um, that will be the ultimate metric um, from which success within the useful life of that tower will be determined, because this is what we have to think about, um, is that you know, you're know you building a building that has a useful life exceeding, well, should exceed arguably 100 years. Um, in 100 years, where will that be? And, and from an expected value, that is probability times future value, what is the impairment on the value of that asset from an investment point of view? Um, I would think it would be significantly impaired.
0: And you've written that potentially planners and developers, you asked the question whether economically and ethically, it's desirable for buildings to have a shorter, useful life. Should we be thinking about buildings that last 10 years rather than 30 years? Because we don't know what the waterfront future holds in this country.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting analytical um, uh, counterpoint to the idea. And certainly this has been within the realm of experience of human settlement for thousands of years, is thinking about degrees of permanence, durability, and capital investment, and the extent to which short or useful life assets or buildings may actually be a superior outcome. Now, that doesn't mean we have to compromise the quality of housing or compromise people's life and safety or public realm. Um, not at all. Actually, I think there's some points, uh, some strong design elements to the contrary. Um, but it does help us think about not just the idea of building codes and buildings as a kind of re- reliability or resilience functionality, but actually thinking about land use. And I think that's the conversation we need to have is not necessarily about the buildings themselves, but what is a responsible allocation of land resources going forward?
0: And you've also said that safety is the foundation of professional license. So do planners and architects have an ethical responsibility to, to say, like, look, you know, I'm not going to build that project because the developer might get their money out and be gone before climate impacts come? But is it... Do planners and architects say, look, that's not an ethical project because of what will happen to that?
1: Well, I would draw, um, I would actually say it's architects and engineers, less so with planners in terms of their professional licensure. But I think it's not so much about the ethics. And I, I think the ethics can play a part of it for sure, but it's actually about their own professional liability, uh, right? And that's Who a different-
0: sued for what? Okay. That's right.
1: And the standard of care, particularly, which is determined really entirely by your local peers and local practice, um, is, you know, in some cases there may very well be certain circumstances where this is an inordinate risk, um, and uh, it may not be one that you can manage or ensure for, and that very well may dictate your capacity to deliver services. And also, by the way, it also may really fundamentally challenge your own professional ethics. And I think for the AIA and others, that is the American Institute of Architects and others, um, there is very much an, an emerging movement uh, for a number of years now in both adaptation and resilience context um, to think about uh, that interface between professional ethics and in, in, in the environment.
0: That was Jesse Keenan, Professor of Climate Adaptation and Urban Planning at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Earlier, Valencia Gunder told us about the very real effects of climate gentrification felt by Miami's poorer communities. I wanted to see its impact for myself, so we headed out for a walking tour of Little Haiti. The neighborhood will be transformed by the coming of the Billion Dollar Magic City Innovation Project.
2: So right now we're on Northeast 2nd Avenue and 59th Street in Little Haiti, which is like Little Haiti's downtown. We're standing right in front of the um, Caribbean Marketplace, which is attached to the Little Haiti Culture Arts Center. It's surrounded by Haitian-owned businesses, small businesses, and things like that. Um, Colorful, Um, you can hear the Caribbean music, you can smell the Caribbean food. You see the Caribbean folks here being great. So we're
0: we're looking at some uh, storefronts, uh, recently closed storefronts. What are they, what used to be there, what
2: happened? So they were small business um, businesses, Haitian-owned businesses, that used to be there. A few months ago, they were all evicted at the same time. They all closed their doors on the same day. They tried to fight it. Um, as a community, the community tried to step up, but they just could not do it because the building is actually owned by somebody else. They, not, they can't afford to stay there, and quite honestly, these new developers and investors don't want those type of restaurants or businesses in our commu- their community now. But that is something that the people of Little Haiti or just communities of color come to Little Haiti for in the first place. Right. The culture, mm-hmm. the fact that we can get Haitian food here, get Haitian culture here. And honestly, they're taking it away. They're stripping it away. So Little Haiti won't even be Little Haiti anymore because all of the businesses are leaving and all the culture is leaving and all the residents are leaving. So what's happening is um, we're starting to see transients, Northeastern folks moving down to Miami. We're starting to see a lot of tech industry coming to Miami. We're starting to see a lot of people from the beach come over to Little Haiti and they are actually whitewashing the culture in communities like Little Haiti um, because it's no Little Haiti unless you have Haitian people with Haitian culture. So they are literally wiping it away, little bit by little bit, by displacing the business owners and the residents.
0: Valencia Gunder, community activist, climate educator, and Miami native. Coming up, we'll talk with Guy Williams, president and CEO of Detroiters Working for Environmental Justice, about the ways that city is rising from the ashes of the Great Recession.
3: For those of us who are looking to have a carbon-free economy that's not driven by burning coal and other derivatives of that kind, it's important to work on how the people employed in those industries can find gainful work and provide for their families in other ways.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the effects of climate change on two cities. With more intense hurricanes beating down their doors, longtime Floridians worry for their safety and their property values. Formerly poor inland areas are being remade into trendier and more expensive neighborhoods. Gradually, for many reasons, some Florida residents are looking to relocate. One city poised to benefit from domestic climate migration is Detroit. My next guest, Guy Williams, is president and CEO of Detroiters Working for Environmental Justice, an organization focused on the social, economic, and environmental health of the motor city. One benefit of climate change is that Michigan is already having warmer winters. And that, along with affordable housing and a revitalized economy, could bring a flock of snowbirds to the Midwest. Williams hopes Detroit will be ready.
3: You know, there's a lot of comment about climate migration that has places like Michigan as places that people will want to come. The challenge I would say that those of us who are here now and who are activists on climate are concerned about is how are we really poised as a city and a region to deal with climate change and maintain, or if best case, improve quality of life conditions. My organization, Detroiters Working for Environmental Justice, is part of some different research going on for example about the impact of heat on housing and the residents of different types of housing we know that the storms that are changing nature and becoming more frequently and much more intense or expanding the level of flooding in our region things of that nature so we would love to have people coming here and helping Be here and join in the prosperity that's possible in the city, yet we have things to take care of first before, you know, it's going to turn out the best.
0: I was uh, in Detroit a a few years ago uh, with my family and saw what's happening, the the gentrification, you know, young white couples pushing a stroller around. We had dinner downtown and they said the food came from an urban farm a mile away where uh, there was a farm where there had been housing that had been, I guess, torn down uh, when, when a lot of people left the city. And I've often said that if You know, young people say, what should I do in a climate future? I look at Detroit and say, it's a growing city. There's affordable housing. There's access to fresh water. They'll have milder winters. How does someone working on this in Detroit respond to an outsider like me saying something like that about Detroit?
3: Well, as I started the train of thought earlier, we're really concerned about the future of Detroit residents who are here now. The level of of poverty The challenges with our education system, the difficulty for residents to access the abundant land that's available. There's a sense that the resources that are coming today are not really benefiting the whole city broadly. On a positive note, there's been a very um, powerful body of work just recently completed by the city's Office of Sustainability. And our organization was very vital to the planning and community engagement around that document. It's called the Detroit Sustainable Action Agenda. And one of our primary goals, which I feel we achieved, was to build the visioning in this first blueprint for city government from voices from the neighborhood level. When you read the report, you'll see that it's organized around a few primary guiding principles like creating a healthy, thriving um, place for people to live that we're pledging to take on the issues of affordable and quality housing, that the processes of city government are going to become more equitable and focusing on green options, things of that nature. Mm
0: -hmm. So
3: it's only been out a few weeks yet. Um, It's these kind of frameworks that I feel hold a lot of promise for creating a different way of operating in the city that will support the people who are here now truly and fully accessing all the abundance that's here now.
0: One positive thing that happened recently is Detroit Renewable Power, a very interesting name, uh, the city's decades-old and controversial solid waste incinerator, uh, shut down. Uh, I remember driving by that and seeing that, you know, big incinerator north of downtown, near downtown. Uh, was that a big win?
3: Oh, absolutely. It's a big win for most of us. As often is the case when there's a transformation in the, the economy there's a challenge initially at people who end up becoming unemployed, needing to find other places to work, and such is the mm-hmm. case, I believe, for many folks who were working at the incinerator, we call it. However, the location of it, the repeated violations of the permit that exist, or the setup permits that were existing, even on the best day, the lack of protection that those permits would afford people all were reasons that many of us have worked for, for several years, some since it, even the 80s before it was built, to not have that there. Myself, I've been involved for over 12 years um, fighting that and looking for alternatives to the waste stream. And so one of the elements of the Sustainability Action Plan, and also that is informed in some part by the Detroit Climate Action Plan, is a formal strategy about solid waste. So now that we're not burning everything in the middle of the city, we still need to step up and have a creative and demonstrably better way of dealing with waste. And ideally one that helps drive a positive economy in the city while affording us cleaner air. So we feel that is very possible and um, groups like Zero Waste Detroit, And Breathe Free Detroit are working hard with the city government on fashioning a just transition for workers. And what do we do about recycling and bringing in businesses that can manufacture clean product process with some of our waste stream? Things of that nature. And let's not leave out uh, composting. There's a lot to be said about that.
0: You mentioned uh, a just transition. What's the vision for a just transition in Detroit? Well, the vision,
3: I would say, is still being built. But you do have the example we just discussed, and there's also a more recent example in a local steel mill that's slated to lay off, I don't know if it's permanently, but certainly for several months, lay off a couple hundred people. And so for those of us who are looking to have a carbon free economy that's not driven by burning coal and other derivatives of that kind, it's important to work on how the people employed in those industries can find gainful work and provide for their families in other ways. So I would say that that's a vision that's under under construction at the time.
0: And how do you see the big uh, kind of revitalization efforts? Uh, Ford wants to transform the old uh, train station, which is kind of a carcass, very visible carcass of decay in in Detroit. I think Chrysler is planning another factory. Um, How do you view the big auto companies, which have moved a lot of jobs out, saying that they might move some jobs back in?
3: Most research on um, public subsidies that I'm aware of they tend to show that the job promises and the the economic impact always falls short. So there's a lot of well-deserved skepticism around it. Obviously having a huge abandoned building like the central train station refurbished and put back in productive use, that's a good thing in and of itself. It's just at what cost and how do we as a society afford the same kind of economic opportunity for advancement to residents who aren't afford. You know, they're not a multi-billion dollar global corporation, but they're entrepreneurs. We also know that small businesses for years and years have been driving the most expansion in economies. It's mm-hmm. not the biggest companies, it's the small mm-hmm. ones.
0: What are the paths for green jobs? You mentioned just transition. We used to hear a lot about green jobs, uh, solar installation. What are some of the specific jobs, low-skill jobs available to people in this you know, cleaner future that you're trying to build a vision for?
3: Well, one of the things that our organization, our nickname is DWEJ, short for Detroiters Working for Environmental Justice, what we've done is we've been involved for several years, training people in the construction trades. And we, we started a subsidiary organization that's a general contracting firm called Future Build Construction Group. So we believe that part of the solution is equipping people with the skills and connections and opportunity to participate in rebuilding the city. Construction has a very strong path to grow in the city of all kinds residential, commercial, and the major infrastructure partners alike. So that's one area where not only can people gain employment, we would hope that in the transformation to a more green economy, that those jobs would also be working on homes that are more energy efficient, that they have low toxic constituency in the parts and we're doing more reusing of building material through deconstruction, and um, that also helped address the waste stream.
0: The mayor has a city climate action plan. Is that a robust document? Is that on target in terms of painting a future for Detroit to adjust to this influx of jobs and make sure the gains are distributed equally and prepare for you know, a future with more people and a, a different kind of future? So just to
3: clarify a little bit, there there are some very positive stands that the mayor has taken on sustainability. However, the actual Detroit Climate Action Plan was written by a broad coalition of folks that was convened by DWEJ over a five-year period from uh, 2012 to 2017. Our report was published. And I mentioned the Sustainability Action Agenda that's come out just recently. So you will see a bit of a bridge in goals and activities that are the city's making commitment to from one document to the other, which is great. And one breakthrough I would say is the city council also in the last few weeks passed a brand new greenhouse gas ordinance where they're committing to reductions in generation of greenhouse gas through municipal operations. I believe their target is 35% reduction from the initial measured levels In 2012, they want to reduce 25% by the year 2024. And they also want to drive, as a companion to that, total greenhouse gas emissions in the city about 30% by 2025. And there's some longer-term goals that go out to 100% reduction in 2050. So that's setting up a framework for proactive conversations about the building envelope of any construction that's either existing or to come. It sets up opportunities for looking at how those facilities are powered. And to your question about jobs, when you take a little bit more of a regional view or outside of the city view, wind farms, solar energy, there's policy options around distributive clean energy that can be adopted. And those would all offer different types of employment and greater rates.
0: There's been a, you mentioned that the state level, there's been quite a change at the state level, the impact of the new democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, who's either defended or extended uh, statewide clean energy standards. Uh, Is that having a positive impact? What's your take on that? Is that, how significant is that?
3: Governor Whitmer, for the most part, is making a very powerful set of statements in regards to environment and energy for sure. One of the key changes she made early in her administration was restructuring the Environmental Regulatory Agency to include responsibilities for climate change. She also implemented some of the key recommendations from the Environmental Justice Working Group that was published uh, last year in the previous administration. So she is making some demonstrative steps that we feel can yield better policy. I mean, I think the key in Michigan, though, will be elections in the coming year, because the legislature is still, by and large, very hostile to the kind of initiatives we support.
0: There's a major freeway, I-375, that was built through uh, Paradise Valley, historically African-American community. That's being uh, taken down. What's your view on that uh, project of removing that freeway that kind of cut through uh, historic black neighborhood Paradise Valley?
3: Well, you know, it's something that arguably never should have happened. And when you look at it through only the lens of logic, more or less putting it back like it was. Seems like a great idea and maybe it is a good idea. I think the the dynamic though that's playing out socially here in the city is it's adjacent to the downtown and the likelihood that the same kind of cultural vibrancy that was there before will not return in that place in that way. So, you know, you could take a cynical view or more rosy view about how good an idea that is in terms of climate change and, and environmental impact, certainly to have more walkability to our center city is a good thing. I think what really is important though, is that when it comes to major investments and major use of public money, that more attention gets paid to areas outside of the center city because the nature of Detroit has so many expansive areas that were primarily residential. Mm -hmm. Many of those areas are now, um, the density of population is not at all what it was. And there needs to be resources and new attention paid on how to maintain and even strengthen those neighborhoods. So to to sum up where Detroit is now
0: in twenty nineteen, looking at increased severe storms, uh and perhaps more moderate uh winters going undergoing a pretty dramatic economic change, demographic change. How do you feel about the prospects for Detroit for the next five years?
3: Well, actually I'm very upbeat about it because there are a lot of positive trends. I mean, I'm I'm an original founding member of our organization and we started in the mid 90s and at that time the understanding and awareness of um, the environmental justice issues was not nearly at the level it is today. The mobilization and the sophistication of information exchange was not what it is today. And so I feel that there's growing momentum um, politically and philosophically that can bring about some positive change. So for example, having more onshore wind turbines, focusing on reducing food waste, expansion of solar farms, and regenerative agriculture all are very viable options, either directly in Detroit or in terms of wind turbines. What you have is the opportunity to impact the rates that users of electricity are paying. So that's something that can affect Detroiters very powerfully, as well as supporting shutting down the coal-fired power plants. And so there's there's places where people are beginning to talk and see the interconnections of different issues. As we plan and we are more strategic as a society, we can make it better. So I'm very, very optimistic.
0: I'm Greg Dalton. On Climate One Today, we've been talking about the future of Miami and Detroit, two cities facing two different climate futures. We just heard from Guy Williams, president and CEO of Detroiters Working for Environmental Justice. My other guests were Miami climate educator Valencia Gunder and Jesse Keenan of the Harvard Graduate School of Design. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.